Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. I really came to understand that I was guilty because of my sin. I still remember the moment. I was at my aunt's wedding and she and her about-to-be husband had chosen the song My Lord, What Love Is This by Graham Kendrick. Now, I had been a pretty good kid growing up. There's really not much of a rebel in me at all. But in amongst the the normal frustrations with myself when I messed up, I had always assumed that God was pretty happy with me. That if I were to stand before his judgment throne, that he would declare me innocent. There was a fair bit of hubris mixed in with my other unacknowledged failings. But standing there that day, we sang, my Lord, what love is this? that pays so dearly, that I, the guilty one, may go free. So I stood there in the middle of my aunt's wedding, having what my daughter would call an existential crisis. It suddenly hit me that I was the guilty one, that I wouldn't be declared innocent, that the verdict was guilty. And that's the problem that our passage today from Hebrews deals with. All of us are the guilty ones. All of us left to ourselves would stand before God's throne and receive a guilty verdict. None of us would be declared innocent. And that's a problem when you believe in a day of judgment, isn't it? But it's an even bigger problem than that. Because the issue isn't just some future day of cosmic judgment. It's about our relationship with God right now. It's about the impossibility of guilty people to be in the presence of a holy God. And that problem haunted me for years. I struggled with my relationship with God and with believing that the Father could love someone like me. And all of that was going on for me when I had already made a commitment to Jesus. In my head, I knew that Jesus had dealt with my guilt. I knew the chorus of the song from the wedding. Amazing love, oh what sacrifice. The Son of God given for me. My debt he paid. In my death he dies, that I might live. I knew all that in my head. But in my heart, I really struggled to believe it. I was the guilty one. How could I be in relationship with God? Some of you might be sitting here today, resonating with what I'm saying. 
Perhaps this knowledge of your guilt before God is something that has been a burden for you in the past. Perhaps it's something that you're still wrestling with. Perhaps you have this little nagging voice inside. I've come to Ridley. I'm studying the Bible. But I still mess up so many Perhaps you're desperate for God to deal with your sinful heart. Maybe that isn't you. Maybe you've been able to accept God's forgiveness and grace in your heart. But I can guarantee you that people that you are in ministry with and to will be struggling with this. This message today is still something that you need to grapple with to be able to help them. So let's look today from Hebrews chapter 10 at what the problem is that we face, why the law and the Levitical priesthood were only a temporary solution, and God's ultimate solution in Jesus. The issue of sin and guilt was a problem for God's people all through the Old Testament. The constant issue is how a sinful people can be in relationship with a holy God. You don't have to look very far in any of the Old Testament books to see this dilemma. God had called a people to be in relationship with him, his treasured possession, as Andrew reminded us two weeks ago. But their inability to be faithful to him kept getting in the way of that relationship. In Isaiah chapter 1, God laments the state of his people. And he uses words to describe them like this. He says they're a sinful nation. They're children given to corruption. He says your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. He says he has no pleasure in their sacrifices. And he calls on them to start seeking justice and defending the oppressed. He describes their sin as being like scarlet and as red as crimson. Human hearts are stained by our sin. No repentance, no acts of penance, no effort in being good can clean us. In Isaiah chapter 1, God does promise that he will change their scarlet sins into snowy whiteness. And only God can do that for us. Only he can make us truly clean. Only he can remove the stain of sin from our hearts. And so the Old Testament Levitical sacrifices and the priesthood were set up to provide a solution to this problem of a sinful people living in relationship with a holy God. The sin offering and the burnt offering and the guilt offering were given to the people by God as gifts, as a way of dealing with their sin and allowing them to approach him in worship. And there's something of a tension in the Old Testament and here in Hebrews 10, because these sacrifices, they were God's solution. And in a sense, they did work. In Leviticus chapter 9, you have Aaron being ordained as the priest, and then he offers these sacrifices, and God's glory appears to all the people, and fire falls down from heaven, but it falls on the sacrifices, not on the people. 
and they worship in God's presence. The sacrifices allowed God, um, God's people to be in his presence and to worship him. But our passage in Hebrews 10 for today is exploring the problem that these sacrifices were not really the solution. They were a temporary fix. They allowed God to and his people to be in relationship with each other. But as Isaiah explores all through his book, and as Hebrews says here, the sacrifices didn't really deal with the problem. The people had sinful and rebellious hearts. We have sinful and rebellious hearts. And so Hebrews 10 presents us with a contrast. The temporary solution of the Levitical sacrifices with the ultimate solution of Jesus. So notice the language that the writer uses to describe the Levitical sacrifices at the start of Hebrews 10. They are repeated endlessly, year after year, in verse 1. They can never make the worshippers perfect. The writer poses this rhetorical question, otherwise would they not have stopped being offered? This is his point. If a Levitical sacrifice really dealt with our sin, then it would be enough. The problem would be gone. The fact that the sacrifices had to keep on being offered meant that the problem was still there. So the writer compares two different states. In verse 2, he describes worshippers who have been cleansed once for all. Their cleanness is a permanent state. These worshippers no longer feel guilty for their sins, is how the NIV puts it. A more direct translation is that they no longer have consciousness of their sin, or they no longer have a conscience of sin. Their hearts are no longer stained. So one state is someone who has had the stain of sin permanently removed. But in verse 3, he says that's, that's not the state under the Levitical sacrifices. The actual state is that instead of no longer having a consciousness of sin, the sacrifices are a constant reminder the sacrifices don't deal with the stain of sin, they just keep on pointing it out to you. In verse 4, the writer puts it bluntly. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. If you just flick back one page to Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 13, the writer of Hebrews says that the blood of goats and bulls make someone outwardly clean. It's a ceremonial cleansing, but it doesn't deal with that stain of sin on your heart. So back in chapter 10, in verse 11, the writer reiterates this again. Verse 11 describes the daily repeated work of the Levitical priests. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So our problem is that we have our hearts stained with sin. The Levitical sacrifices were only a temporary solution. They did provide outward cleansing, and they let God dwell in the midst of his people. 
but they didn't really deal with the problem. Those repeated sacrifices provided external cleaning, but they didn't remove that stain of sin on people's hearts. But as I've been saying, the Levitical sacrifices were God's temporary solution. God didn't institute those sacrifices because he loves the smell of burnt bull. In verses 5 and 6, the writer of Hebrews puts the words of Psalm 40 in Jesus' mouth, proclaiming that God doesn't actually desire sacrifices and offerings. The sin offerings and burnt offerings don't please him. Sacrifices themselves aren't God's ultimate plan. He didn't ask for them because he wants the sacrifices. They were a measure designed to allow the sinful people to be in relationship with God and to teach them. They don't help at all if they're tokenistic and done by people who don't care about the things that God cares about. The Levitical sacrifices were a temporary measure in place until the ultimate solution came along. Hebrews 10 says in verse 8, first he says, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus sets aside the offerings to establish the will of God. And what is that will? that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Make sure you hear that this morning. Whether you need to hear it today for yourself or whether you need to tuck it away in your heart to share with someone else, listen to what verse 10 is saying. God's will, the thing that God wants, the thing that God purposes to bring about, is that his people are made holy. And was that become holy by being really good and not screwing up? No. That was being made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. It was the sacrifice of Jesus once for all. So you being made holy is not about you saying sorry enough, or finally being good enough. It's about what Jesus has already done nearly 2,000 years ago. And just in case you missed it, the writer of Hebrews reiterates it for you again. Unlike the Levitical priests who had to repeat their work day after day because their sacrifices could never take away sin, In verse 12, it says that Jesus offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, and then he sat down. His work of atonement is finished. Because, as verse 14 says, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Note the two-sided nature of our holiness in that verse. On one hand, we've been made perfect forever. The Greek is a perfect tense verb here, and it indicates that our ongoing state is one of perfection. 
clearly, none of us are perfect. I have this conversation regularly with my kids. None of us are perfect in the sense of never making any mistakes or making any bad choices. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, you have been granted a state of perfection, a forever state of perfection. Not a you're perfect until you mess up and then you're not perfect until you say sorry state, but in some sense, an ongoing state of perfection. How can that be? Well, we'll get to that in a moment, but first notice the other side of this verse. We have been made perfect, the ones who are being made holy. So it's a permanent state, but it's also a work in progress. Something real happened when Jesus made the atonement sacrifice for us. Something permanent. But we're still in the process of being made holy. We're still on the journey. We're not quite there yet. How are we to understand all this? What's going on that we can be already perfect forever when we're still being made holy? The rest of the passage offers us two clues as to how God does this, as the writer quotes from Jeremiah 31. First, there's that beautiful verse about the new covenant. When the law will no longer be on tablets of stone, but will be written on our hearts and on our minds. This is part of the reason that Jesus' sacrifice is not like the Levitical sacrifices. It's not just an external act a ceremonial cleansing performed on people whose hearts are still going astray. Jesus' sacrifice makes us holy in part because God actually changes our hearts. Augustine would describe it as God healing our hearts so that we can love God and genuinely want to do things his way. He puts his law on our hearts and minds. That is, instead of God's requirements for holy living being an external standard that we have to strive to live up to while we grumble and complain like the Israelites in the wilderness. No, instead God puts his law within us. He turns our hearts and our minds back to his ways. He gives us the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ and teaches us what God requires of us. So something has happened inside of us. Our hearts have been changed to have God's ways inscribed on them. And I think as Christians, we can hopefully all attest that there was a change in our heart when we became a Christian. But it's something that we're still learning to live into. We're still learning to submit our own desires to God's ways. We have been changed, but we are still being made holy. So God changes our hearts, but he also makes a decision regarding us because of Christ's sacrifice. In verse 17, the writer of Hebrews continues to quote Jeremiah, saying, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And this is something that we need to take hold of and trust God on. He has chosen, on the basis of Jesus' atonement offering, to no longer remember our sins. Now, this doesn't mean that God has a memory wipe or that the omniscient God suddenly has a blank spot in his knowledge. 
No, it means that God has determined that he will not regard our sins. He will not treat us on the basis of our sins. He will not judge us for them. He will act as though they have not happened. They are gone. They're wiped out. And the Greek in verse 17 contains the emphatic negative, ume. God will certainly not. He will definitely not remember our sins and transgressions. And so, in verse 18, there is no need of another sacrifice. The problem is dealt with. So this is why Jesus is God's ultimate stain remover. This is why we are in a state of perfection. Because the God of the universe has decided that Jesus' sacrifice is enough to cancel out our sins. He banishes the stain of them from our hearts, declaring them to be forgotten. And he puts his laws there instead. If you read on in chapter 10, the writer continues with the call to, as the perfected and as the being made holy people of God, to approach God's throne in worship. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to continue with a reflection, a chance for you to respond to God's offer of forgiveness with a time of confession. Can I encourage you this morning that if you need to deal with a burden of guilt or a feeling that God cannot be very pleased with you because you just can't get it together, can I encourage you to let God minister to you in that space this morning? Hear his offer of forgiveness and love. Sin has left an ugly stain on our heart, but we're offered more than just a ceremonial cleansing. Our worship is more than just a constant reminder of our sin. No, God's stain remover is applied to our hearts, making them as white as snow. God says in Jesus that he will remember your sins no more. He has once for all time, made you perfect, even as you are still being made holy. For some of you, this isn't the message that you need to focus on. You might even be sitting there thinking that I haven't brought out the need for us to put effort into our holy living, or that I've downplayed the need to take the Christian life seriously. The book of Hebrews does have plenty to say about not taking God's grace towards us lightly, about striving to follow Jesus and living faithfully. But for this morning, I'm talking to those who know all too well the need to put in effort and who instead need to hear that all that is necessary for your cleansing and perfection is already done. And if that isn't you, can I encourage you to reflect on that anyway now as we go into this time of reflection? And let these truths worm their way even deeper into your heart. But I know for sure that there are going to be people in your church, in your ministry, maybe even in your family, who are struggling with this themselves. And they need you to be able to remind them of God's grace. So let me pray for us this morning as we finish. Father God, we thank you and we praise you that we have Jesus as our high priest, that he has offered the atonement offering that has made us perfect in your sight. 
Lord, we know that we are far from perfect, that we get it wrong every single day. But we thank you that you have declared us to be perfect and you have put your law in our hearts and you are making us holy and you have removed the stain of sin. Help us to accept your grace towards us today and help us to comfort others with your love and grace too. In Jesus' precious name, amen.